Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we are going to be talking about a year of wildflower hunting, finding out how to identify wild plants by their fruits and hearing about a 22-year-old who is saving endangered plants in his region. This podcast is part of Wildflower Hour which takes place between 8 and 9pm every Sunday night on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. People from all over Britain and Ireland flood the internet with their photos of the flowers they found growing wild that week. You don't need to know anything about wildflowers to join in. All you need to have done is to have found some. And when you start looking, you'll find that they are everywhere, from cracks in the pavement to nature reserves. One woman whose enthusiasm for finding wildflowers is just too infectious to resist is Zoe Devlin. She has been a botanist all her life and has written a number of books about hunting for the wildflowers of Ireland. She's got a new one out called Blooming Marvellous, A Wildflower Hunter's Year, and it really is a joyful month-by-month record of the wild plants she has found, along with their stories, her stories, history, recipes, and all manner of tales to keep you entertained in the moments when you're indoors and reading, rather than outdoors and hunting. I spoke to Zoe about why botany has been so important to her for so many years. So Zoe, how long have you been a wildflower hunter? Most of my life, actually. Maybe hunter in the more latter years of my life, but I've always been absolutely fascinated with them since I was about seven or eight. I used to actually be sent by my mother down to the vegetable patch to pick peas or spinach or whatever. And it was the little weeds which were growing between the rows of vegetables which always fascinated me. I used to just love to see these these little sort of sometimes it would be scarlet pimpernel maybe, sometimes it would be um, the common field speedwell and um, whatever was growing between them but I was very fascinated with them. My mother had a, a nice flower garden as well but it was the wildflowers that I loved. And you've never really been into gardening, it's always been flowers that, that garden themselves basically. That's exactly it. Well put, yeah. No, I I actually detest gardening. I just keep my garden tidy in some areas which have to be kept tidy. And then I have a couple of wild patches, which I love. I love to see what's growing there and what arrives unbidden. I'm a gardener and a botanist and I have a real conflict when I'm pulling up, for instance, a gallant soldier, which you describe so beautifully in your book. Is it the common flowers that you love as much as the rare ones or do you still get more of a thrill from finding, I don't know, a lady's tresses orchid, for instance? Oh, I get a great thrill from finding something unusual. But every year when I renew the acquaintanceship with the common plants, it's good. It's good to see that it's still growing there. It's still where it was maybe last year. But I mean, OK, it is wonderful when you come across something that you haven't seen before, especially if nobody has told you where you might find it. If you do it purely by accident, that's an absolute thrill. Last year, my husband Pete, Pete is my husband and he is my uh, roadie, as he calls himself, because the two of us travel all around Ireland looking at wild things. He is very interested in birds and we've both learned quite a bit from each other, me about the birds and he about the wildflowers. And we heard that there was a sighting of some avocets down in the southeast corner of Ireland and we were fascinated because we've never seen avocets. They're not very commonly found in Ireland. They don't get this far. So we headed down to where we thought they might be and we spent quite a lot of time looking, but we didn't see them. And on the way back, you see, we have this habit of going down little side roads just to see what's down there. And we went down this side road and uh, there was a little car park, an unofficial kind of car park. And we just stopped to see what might be over the bank because we thought we were close to the coast and, you know, it might be interesting. I said to Pete, 
that looks like something I've never seen before. And it was wild clary, which is quite scarce in Ireland. And I'd never seen it before. And in it was just such a lovely end to a day when we'd gone looking for one kind of part of wildlife and we'd found another. It was, it was lovely. It's beautiful spikes of blue flowers. As a gardener, you probably know the salvias. So it's one of those. And it was just so beautiful and so unexpected. So it made my day and his too. It's those finds that you're not expecting that you just stumble across when you're on your way to something else or as you're saying you're looking for something else and suddenly this other flower pops up because actually they don't pop up according to schedule do they and it's wonderful when you find them. What, what are the other, um, tell me about the rarest flower that you've seen. You describe some incredibly unusual plants in your book. What's your favourite rare flower? Well the rarest flower I've seen and it's only been spotted I think by two or three people in Ireland is a very of the bee orchid and instead of having the three pink sepals which the ordinary and I really can't use the word ordinary about a bee orchid but your normal the one you would expect to find uh, instead of the three pink sepals there are three white creamy white sepals it's it's kind of looks like an anemic version of your bee orchid a little washed out but it's quite different I found it while I was looking for something else which was funny. I'd gone looking for a large-flowered butterwort. I had seen it years ago, but I hadn't seen it since the digital age came, and I wanted to get a decent photo on the digital camera. So I went looking for it in a place where it's known to grow, down in the Burren in County Clare. I was a little late in the year, and I thought, well, I might be lucky if I can catch it. But when I found them, in fact, they had gone to seed, and they weren't looking their best. And I was a bit disappointed. So on the way back down the track, and it was pouring rain on that particular day, and we were under a big black umbrella, and things were kind of gloomy when you don't find what you're looking for. You know, you get a bit, oh, that's a shame. On the way down, I spotted this orchid, this bee orchid, and it was just amazing. And I managed to get a few photos, even though the day was bad, because the digital age was here. And uh, when I presented it to the people here who are experts in orchids, they were able to identify it for me. And it was a variety called flavescens, and uh, it had only been recorded, actually, at that stage, only once before in Ireland. So that was a lovely one to find. And again, unexpectedly. One of my favourite bits in your book is in September, where you write about cottonweed, which is such a strange and, again, very difficult to find plant. Do you want to describe that to those who haven't been lucky enough to see it? Yeah, and it's actually it's vanishing so quickly. This year we went down to look at it, which we do every year. It's kind of an annual pilgrimage to see the cottonweed. It's a kind of silvery foliage, which is almost like flock. Do you know the flock on wallpapers? It was like a dull, felty finish. It's a matte finish, really. And the leaves are somewhat succulent. The little flower is a tiny little daisy family flower, a little yellow one at the top. And it's most unusual. And when we went to look this year, there were 13 plants. And that was all. In the whole of Ireland? Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I don't think you have it in Britain either. No, we don't. No, no. So it's it's such a shame. Your book is called A Wildflower Hunter's Year. Now, lots of people stop looking for wildflowers round about September when they think that the plants have shut up shop and they're just going to have to hunker down for the winter and wait until spring when the flowers come out again. But you've written throughout the year about flowers. So clearly there's quite a lot to be seen. What, what are your tips for, for winter wildflower hunting? Well, I think it's a time to look at the leaves 
and because a lot of plants will retain their leaves throughout the winter and even in the beginning of the year for instance the celandine will come out quite early in the year and if you look at the leaves you go for a regular walk and you notice the leaves then you'll learn what that plant's going to be when it when it gets its flowers and you say oh yeah that leaf i can connect it to that flower and now i know what that is so it's a kind of a quiz to yourself wondering can you identify flowers by their leaves alone um and it's it's a good discipline in a way but there are quite a few flowers that flower right throughout the winter I mentioned the common field speedwell earlier and that that flowers all year round those shepherd's purse chickweed groundsel of course is always coming out and the gorse hangs on to its flowers usually throughout the winter and it's amazing how many i know the bsbi have their count as do the national biodiversity data center here in ireland we have a count here in the new year to see how many flowers we can find coming out and it's amazing it really is there's quite a lot to be seen but i do think the discipline of looking at the leaves and trying to match them then to the flowers when they come out that's a good learning curve we do have quite a few listeners who aren't botanists who just like learning new things and who are intrigued about botany hopefully as a result of this podcast what tips would you give to people who are just starting out on the wildflower journey that has given you so much joy for so many years well first of all i'd invest in a magnifying glass or hand lens about 10 magnification is enough and i'd carry that with you whenever you're going out and a notebook and pencil and if you have a camera or a camera phone you know use it and don't just look at the flowers look underneath them look at the leaves look at the stems see if they got little hairs and keep careful notes and when you get home then get out the book that you like best the one that does it for you and that this is the way pour over those books keep on looking keep on looking even going through the winter you can look at those photographs look at those notes and match them up and within a couple of years if it even takes you that long you'll start counting up quite a few species that you can recognize automatically without having to go back to the book. The old hand lens, I would say, get that. And also the pleasure of looking at a wildflower through the hand lens and seeing how it works, you know, how the flower itself works on the different parts of the flower. It's amazing. It opens up a whole new world. That was Zoe Devlin, whose book Blooming Marvelous, A Wildflower Hunter's Year, is available to buy now. Zoe mentioned the importance of looking at the leaves on plants, And another handy and beautiful thing to look at when plants aren't flowering is their fruit. Kevin Widowson works for the Wildlife Trusts in Nottinghamshire and is a keen Wildflower Hour member. He has made an absolutely fabulous poster and key to the fruits of a number of wild plants in Britain. And I spoke to him about how to get started with this kind of identification. So, Kevin, there aren't that many wild plants in flower at the moment, even though people are trying their best for wildflower hour to find as many as they possibly can. But is it possible to identify a lot of them through their fruits? Yes, it is. You can certainly get to family level with a lot of the fruit, but there are some particular family groups where you can even get down to species level, depending on what quality of the fruit you've got. You can separate down to species level between the thistles and different types of thistles. got the Circeum genus, which has, if you imagine the papus, which is the dandelion clock type um, type affair. You 
can look at the hairs and they are simple on Carder's species, which are the nodding thistles, and they are hairy on the normal thistles, the Circeums. So you can, if, but just by that minute kind of observation of these features, you can get down to quite detailed identifications. Do you need special equipment to be able to see those hairs? You can do it with a times 10 lens, but one of the kind of jeweler's loop that most botanists will carry around with them. I, just through my own personal interest, I use just a normal binocular microscope. You produced this wonderful poster which we featured on our website. What are the most difficult plants to identify by their fruit? Well, the the most difficult plant group are the water starworts, the calatriki species. You can't actually identify those species without the presence of fruit and you have to use a microscope for that identification. If you look in the, the main identification guide that botanists use and the new flora of the British Isles by Clive Stace, there's very detailed structured keys which are yes or no questions on the identification features. Very detailed answers that you need to give to get down to the species level on the Calatriki water starwort species. Other families that fruit are kind of essential to, to identify species with are the cabbage family. You really need to have um, mature fruit again to really get down to the detailed separations. It's a fascinating way of identifying things. You get to really learn the structure of plants and the different parts of them. So can you give an example of how you'd identify a couple of different members of the cabbage family by their seeds? Because they can, to a layperson like me, they can look pretty similar. The different kind of features that you'll get on the cabbage family fruit would be what shape they are, first of all. So there are long, thin, linear fruit, which you think of your bitter cresses, which are the kind of really small plants that you'll get with their really rapid generation, life cycle generation. They have very long, thin fruit, which contain the seeds into them. And when you dissect them, you can see whether the seeds are all on one side, whether there's one row of seeds or two rows of seeds. The other type of in the cabbages are the more flattened fruit. So if you think of shepherd's purse, which is one of my favourite members of the cabbage family, it's got a heart-shaped fruit which is flattened and it separates down the middle of the heart. So it's kind of like a breaking heart, if you like, opening up to to release the seed. So really, with that kind of level of detail, you can very quickly get to genus level. And, and as I say, with the cabbage family, that is the main means of identification. The BSBI, the Botanical Society of Britain Island, they have their own handbook on cabbages, which is written by Dr. Tim Rich. Essential book, really, if you're really pursuing botany, really good. It's the starting questions in the key are all based on fruit so if you don't have the fruit present you can't use the key so it's that important. I love shepherd's purse anyway because it's one of those wildflowers that you really do see everywhere even in very grey urban environments there it is with its little heart-shaped seeds and I just love your description of broken-hearted shepherds and I know that I'll think of that every (laughs) time I see one in the cracks in the pavements. Are there any other seeds or fruits that you find that are just really cool? Absolute favourites without a doubt are the fruit heads of geranium species. So shining crane's bill, which is very very similar to dove's foot crane's bill and it's a it's a common very common species it has this this amazing kind of catapult system where the seeds are kind of held on this column at the base where the flower would start where all the petals would join and as the petals fall off and the seed matures into fruit that column starts to 
coil up and spring and then at a critical point it shoots it all coils up and flings the seed out from these kind of catapult like pouches on the fruit itself and the seeds will just go flying out like that it's a really just how something evolved to have that kind of mechanism is just amazing really i've got some shining cranes for growing alongside my bins so i sometimes go bin botanizing just to keep yeah. a check on yeah. them what are the terms that you need to understand when you're looking at fruit I think this is one of the most off-putting things for people who have started to get a grasp of the various different wildflowers, probably along the same lines of where I am at the moment as, as a very amateur botanist. I know the different families, but when I start looking at, for instance, members of the daisy family, I get very overwhelmed by all of the terms. And if there were three terms in terms of fruit identification that wildflower hour members who are at the same early stage as me could understand and need to learn, what do you think they are? I guess the first and most obvious one, which is kind of a a catch-all one, is just to know what the fruit is. And the fruit is the thing that contains the seed. My favourite term is hypanthium, which is an extension of the receptacle of the plant. And the receptacle is the point where the stem joins the flower. So it's kind of the thing that holds the flower onto the plant. And in the rose family, the hypanthium in some species actually goes over the seed and encloses it in a false fruit. So if you think of an apple, an apple is, is a kind of false fruit, if you like. The hypanthium has covered the, the actual fruit and the seed, and the seeds are contained within it. So all that fleshy part that you're eating isn't actually the fruit, it's part of the plant. So you could argue that it's a vegetable as opposed to a fruit. So the hypanthium is one of my favourite terms because it really requires you to understand the structure of the plant. Papus, the favourite one. The, the papus are the parachute-like hairs that come from the seed, the achenes. I think I mentioned before that if you imagine the dandelion clock and all the hairs that come off when you blow it and you can just see them kind of floating in the air, that mechanism itself is designed for seed dispersal and again as I say you can look at the hairs and what details the hairs have to make that separation between the fruit but the papers itself are the hairs that make that parachute. So that's another key term. And I suppose a, a last one would be akin, actually, as I've just mentioned. So an akin is a hard fruit, dry fruit casing. And often the detail on the ridges and the shell of the akin are a key way of identifying a a particular plant so looking whether it's got ridges on it or bumps or spots or even in the case of the dandelion it's got little hooks on it which help it bed into the ground through through wind and movement by analyzing the fruit you get this whole fascinating world of how plants come up with different methods of seed dispersal and just the fact that they've evolved those different methods is is just you know amazing really i wonder whether some listeners might actually be thinking well this is all very well but i don't want to be st- standing in a cold field or a cold park staring at a fruit in the rain trying to get all these details that you've talked about is it okay for people to collect the fruits and seeds of these plants or, or is that actually damaging to their long-term survival in the wild there's definitely an argument that you need to be responsible when you're collecting samples most of the county recorders that give the advice that you operate a kind of one in 20 rule where you don't you don't take any sample unless there are you know around there's a good population of plants in the vicinity that have the fruiting bodies on there obviously if you're collecting acorns or conkers then there'll be an abundance of those and you can collect those in the samara of the acer species the winged fruit the helicopters that we call them or spinning jennies there's an abundance of those so you can collect those without having to worry about that too much but if you're really unsure and there's only one plant there then i would i would leave it be really that was kevin widowson on knowing plants by their fruit 
And finally, Joshua Stiles may only be 22, but he's one of the best things about Wildflower Hour, and someone who is already making a huge mark on the floral diversity of the northwest of England. Fresh from university and settling into his first job, Joshua has set up the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, which he runs in his spare time. I spoke to him about why he's trying to save endangered plants in the area around him. So Josh, you've just graduated from university. You're now in your first job and it's all about the sort of the love of your life, which is botany. How did you get into wildflowers in the first place? Well, it started as an interest in growing vegetables when I was about eight years old. After that, it sort of really took off, um, most especially from Gardener's World and their introduction and encouragement of um, growing wildflowers from seed. So from that, I've, I've really developed as a wildflower gardener and now I'm an ecologist and, and I do botany every week. And so you set up the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative and that's something you're doing in your spare time on top of your job? Yes, it is. So the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, it's it's really something I do in my spare time. I only work as an ecologist part-time. The aims of the project really is to cultivate those species that are on the very cusp of regional extinction with the ultimate goal of reintroduction onto sites that are, are suitable for those species. So what are some of the plants that you're cultivating? Well, for example, I'm cultivating a whole a whole host of plants, one of them being, for example, round leaf wintergreen. It's this fabulous little wintergreen plant. It has this basal rosette with shiny round leaves and when it flowers, it has these spikes. It's tremendously white, snowy coloured flowers, really a fabulous plant. It's nationally scarce and, and it's on inland sites especially it's really declined in the region. And another example as well being sheep bit scabious. It's, a, it's this lovely low-growing plant of, of acid grasslands and heath. In fact, in, in the region, it now exists as two single plants. I, I'm cultivating it en masse for, for a suitable reintroduction earlier in um, 2018. And why have these plants declined at all? It's largely to do with both the change in habitat management, the loss of habitat, and obviously a, a huge amount of our natural habitats have gone down to agriculture so there's a huge lack in connectivity so if one on an isolated bit of heathland for example of sheep's bit goes extinct then it can't simply move from another area of heathland like it may have been able to uh, to recolonize the site so it's completely lost and that's the case for, for a huge majority of the plants that I, I actually cultivate. And so do you collect their seeds from sites where there's a good population and then raise them at home? How does it actually work? Plants are taken into cultivation in a variety of forms, obviously with the permission of the landowner or, or statutory body like Natural England. I could take a cutting, I could take seeds like I have done from sheep bit gabious I mentioned or, or it could be from actual plant a whole variety of methods and ways to sample plants and then eventually to cultivate them really. Some people listening might be thinking oh but I was always told that I shouldn't pick wildflowers. Have you had to have a special license or is it because you've actually trained as an ecologist that you're able to do this yourself? By and large people should not pick wildflowers especially if you don't know what something is but really sampling 
plants for my initiative. If there's only one plant in an entire population over an area, obviously uh, the chances are I probably wouldn't take material from that plant because um, it could be detrimental to the species. So, so really sampling is only, I only do it with the permission of a landowner accompanied by obviously is it suitable to take that plant and if I take it or a part of it Will that sampling be detrimental to the population or not? Why does it matter that you're conserving these plants? You've described round-leaved wintergreen, for instance, as as being very pretty. But there are some wildflowers that, frankly, when you show them to someone who isn't into botany, no matter how many times you say this is rare, they just look at you and think, why on earth are you even looking for that plant? It's terribly dull. (laughs) Well, I think every time someone asks me, I go back to the same old saying, which is plants are the fundamental basis of all life on Earth. So so I think conserving individual species, habitats, it's tremendously important for a whole variety of reasons. But really, I want to see it, and I don't want it to go extinct. And I'm sure people in future generations would like to see it as well. And so as well as running this, you also just love botany as a hobby. What is it that attracts you to it? Is it the detail? Is it trying to find something new? Is it actually revisiting old plants that you see every year? If I'm completely honest, what absolutely is completely fascinating to me is that there's a whole variety of forms of plants, especially indigenous to the UK, and the sheer number of adaptations that each species has, each habitat niche that, that each species could fulfil. It's I just I just find the whole individual species ecology of individual species completely different and each one very unique. What's your favourite plant? My favourite plant is probably bird's eye primrose. It's a lovely little, very close relative to the primulas that you buy in garden centres. It's a lot smaller and more, more delicate. It has these lovely salmony pink flowers with an orangey yellow centre in clusters born on stalks from basal rose. It's a tremendous thing and, and you only tend to find it around the Yorkshire area. I do love that flower as well, actually. I saw it at Gate Barrows Nature Reserve in Lancashire this year for the first time and it it really doesn't look like it belongs in the English landscape and you realise that what we see as being wild flowers in our imagination are are quite washed out and actually our flora is incredibly colourful and diverse in a way that it's quite easy not to appreciate. Absolutely. I think one thing that has got me into botany a lot more, particularly the smaller things in the botanical world, is the purchase of a hand lens and a macro lens for my camera as well. It really opens up the beauty of really refined and smaller things. And you are a young botanist. You're a graduate. Do you have many friends who are into botany, aside from those who you obviously studied alongside? (laughs) that's not particularly one thing i can say is that all the friends that i have there's certainly a great majority of them are interested when i talk about plants to them and and a lot of my friends know a great deal more than the rest of the general public about botanical world in britain as a result of spending time with you that's wonderful so is it actually that you give them a little bit of detail about these plants and they start to realize quite how diverse and how weird some 
of our native flowers are too. Absolutely. I, I think before I began, my interest in, in discolate any knowledge on, on the botanical assemblages and, and individual species that live in Britain, everything was sort of a green haze. I think when you begin to identify species and know more about them, things catch your eye a lot more and it completely opens up a, a completely new world, which I find exceptionally fascinating. That was Joshua Stiles on his plan to save the rare plants of the northwest of England. And that's all for this week. But before you go, the lovely people at Plant Life have offered everyone who takes part in Wildflower Hour a 50% discount on their annual membership. Just type in WF Hour at the checkout on their website and we'll include a link to the membership page on wildflowerhour.co.uk. Please do take part in Wildflower Hour on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm. On Twitter and Instagram you can use the hashtag Wildflower Hour and on Facebook we have a Wildflower Hour group where you can post your photos and swap tips on identifying mystery plants. We support and work closely with the Wildlife Trusts, Plant Life, the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland and the Wildflower Society and you can find links to all these wonderful organisations on our website. Thanks for listening and do join us again for the next episode in a fortnight's time.